Psalm chapter 40. Here in the middle of winter, even though the last few days have felt a bit more like summer than winter, we're studying psalms that focus on God's salvation. I've entitled the series Songs of Salvation. The passage we're studying today is Psalm 40, a song of salvation in which David rejoices over God's salvation and he keeps waiting for it. David was king in Israel around 1000 BC, so about 3000 years ago, and he is an important figure in biblical history because God had promised him that one of his descendants would reign as king forever on earth. Of course, that long-awaited king from David's line was Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ. And Psalm 40, as we're going to see, powerfully points to him. I want us to read Psalm 40 together, and at a few points, including one right out of the gate, I'm going to stop and fill in some detail and some context. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. I'm not going to go through it right now, but you will see if you read Psalm 37, 38, 39, and 40, that David is waiting. He first counsels waiting, and then he waits, and then he waits. And here in Psalm 40, he says, I waited, and the Lord answered me. Seems like these four psalms could have been written about the same incident. But the little detail I want to point out and focus on more is that word patiently. I don't think that the word patiently conveys most clearly the author's meaning. If you read the Hebrew, David simply doubles the word. He said, I waited, waited on the Lord. A paraphrase might be, I waited on the Lord. I mean, I waited, and I waited with longing for him to answer me. He's not saying what sometimes is conveyed to us by the word patiently. I perfectly waited. I mean, I was just content. I was very, very patient as I waited. That's not his sense. His sense is I waited, and I kept waiting, and I kept waiting for God to answer me. And this conveys something of the Christian experience, right? Romans 8 says, We wait on God with long groaning and with eager expectation. We wait and we wait and we wait. David waited on God and he remembers, verse 2, the Lord drew me up from the pit of destruction. He pulled me out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of fresh praise to our God because of this new deliverance. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Then David reflects, counsels even, how blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie, thinking they and their way of deliverance and of of life is better than God's. He says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. You might have it in your marginal note next to verse 5, Psalm 139, 17. David's language in Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms, 
is very similar. In Psalm 139, David says, how precious to me are your thoughts. Same word, your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would try to count them, they're more in number than the sand. David continues in Psalm 40, verse 5. I'm going to proclaim and tell of them your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward me, yet they're more than can be told. But that doesn't keep David from trying. Then he says, I'm going to devote myself to you in wholehearted consecration. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. This refers to tender teachability. You've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. The scroll of the book seems to refer back to Deuteronomy 17, where the king of Israel was required by law to write for himself a personal copy of the first five books of the Bible. And it's critical to remember that there is only one king of Israel in all of Israel's history who completely delighted in God's law, and it wasn't David. Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 10, quote the stanza we just read because it refers ultimately to Jesus. Verse 9, David sings, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy or your compassion from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. This stanza right here indicates that David is overwhelmed with a sense of his own failures. He seems to realize that his present trials are largely of his own making. So it's likely... I would guess that Psalm 40 is written after David's treacherous sins against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah, because it was in the aftermath of those terrible failures, those notorious sins, that God told David trials would never leave your house. Look at verse 13. Interestingly, just a note, the rest of the psalm from this point on, verse 13 down through 17, is Psalm 70. It's like Psalm 70 is a later cover of a portion of Psalm 40. David writes in verse 13, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, even in these trials that are largely of my own making. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. In our language today, we might say, yes, I got him. Ha, he's ours. Something like that. We have rule over him. We're going to win. Verse 16, but may all who seek you rejoice 
and be glad in you, Lord. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I'm poor and needy. But my master takes thought for me. The Lord, Adonai, takes thought for me. You're my help, my deliverer. Don't delay, oh my God. There are some variations for how translators divide Psalm 40 into differing stanzas. But the way the ESV has it is pretty standard, seems pretty solid, dividing it into seven stanzas. And pretty much everyone seems to agree that there are two major parts to the psalm, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 11 to the end. The first three stanzas look back to the past and celebrate a deliverance of thrilling salvation that God has given. Verses 1 through 3, David basically says, I waited for the Lord and he rescued me. Verses 4 and 5, how blessed are those who trust the Lord. They're going to tell of his deliverance. Verses 6 through 8, oh God, I want you to have myself. I want you to have my heart's complete devotion. That's what you desire. Verses 9 and 10 seem to be something of a short bridge that emphasize, and very much like last week in Psalm 27, emphasize the importance of praising God in the congregation of his people and not keeping it private. When God saves you, speak out publicly. And interestingly, the psalm ends in the second half, in the last three stanzas, with David looking at his present ongoing crises. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Lord, mercifully deliver me from all of my iniquities. There's so many. Verses 13, 14, and 15, Lord, quickly make haste, he says, to deliver me from my enemies. And the last two verses, Lord, those who trust you are going to rejoice. Please, please deliver me. You're my helper. I'm looking to you. And the psalm ends on this plea, deliver me. So the first part is focused on past deliverance. And in the second half, David looks at his present crises and he says, Lord, please save me from these trials that are ongoing in my life. And as I already pointed out, they seem to be in some sense, David understands them to be self-inflicted. So it's been said the first part of Psalm 40 is thanksgiving and the second part is lament. You have saved me. Save me. Here's how I'd state the main idea. Like David, all who trust King Jesus look back and rejoice over how God has wonderfully saved us. Even as we still wait on God to save us from all our present suffering. Just like David, all who trust King Jesus look back and rejoice over how God has wonderfully saved us. Even as we still wait on God to save us from all our present suffering. I've titled the message just Wonderfully Saved and Still Waiting for Salvation. David is praising God after experiencing waiting and salvation, and yet David is still waiting on God for complete salvation from all his enemies. In the time that remains, I want to preach in greater detail just the first three stanzas of this psalm. I want to apply them to our lives. 
We won't have time for all of them, though I wish we didn't. As I try to apply the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, I would say, if God has saved you, then praise him for answering your prayer and saving you. It's very simple. We don't know the exact sort of trial that David was in as he waited and waited and waited for God to answer his prayer and save him. But David likened his experience to being stuck in a pit of mud on the brink of death. Several years ago, one of my brothers, he laughs about it now, one of my brothers was in Alaska. And as the tide went out on the river that he was eating dinner next to, he did what he came to learn he shouldn't have done. And he went out and took a walk in the riverbed. And at one point, he sunk down about knee deep in the mud. And he ended up going down into the middle of his thighs. He could not get out. He shouted for help. And eventually, the local fire department came and extracted him before the tide came in. That's something of the imagery here. Stuck in mud, and there is no chance of getting out on your own. And you're crying and waiting for help. The Lord answered David's cries for help and delivered him from dying. In whatever trial he was in, God pulled him out. And everyone who has trusted Jesus can apply these first three verses to ourselves. Many of us do. In the hymn that we sing at the end of the service, Worthy of All My Praise, we're going to sing, You picked me out of the miry clay and you set my feet on the rock. Every one of us is going to testify. We look back and we say, God, I cried out on the Lord Jesus to save me and he heard my prayer. He forgave my sin. He rescued me from eternal death, from condemnation. He's given me his spirit who's united me with himself and I'm forever safe. We sang a few weeks ago on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This is the testimony of every believer. So how do you praise God for saving you? It's interesting that David writes in verse 3, when God saves, he puts in your mouth a song. According to this passage, the best way to praise God for salvation is by singing. As he's going to say in verses 9 and 10, regularly gathering in a great congregation and singing songs of salvation. So I ask, did you sing out sincerely from your heart this morning? Hopefully just not mouthing the words, but really engaging with every other believer here as you sang, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Has God put that song in your mouth? And sing it. Sing the song of praise to the Lord because he pulled you out of the miry pit and set your feet on the rocks. Sing about it. Sing about it when you're having an awful week. Sing about it when you're having a great week. You've got a song of salvation to sing, believer. Sing it. 
Second application, if God has saved you, then try, the key word in this point is try, to enumerate his innumerable wonders. In verses 4 and 5, David describes the happiness, the blessedness of those who choose to trust the Lord. In verse 5, he describes God, his Savior, as incomparable, and all of his wondrous deeds as innumerable. And yet, he says, even though they're more than can be told, verse 5, he says, I will tell them. I will tell them, even though they're more than can be told. That's why I use the word try. The fact that God's greatness and goodness toward us is infinite shouldn't discourage us from trying to describe it. I mean, you're probably like me. If if someone said, why don't you count as high as you possibly can? You wouldn't look at that and be like, yes, let me start right now. Because you know that numbers are infinite, you know that you will never, ever, ever stop. Right? But David is a model for us here. He says, I'm going to tell of them even though they're more than can be told. We should try to enumerate the innumerable. God's wonderful saving deeds. How do we do this? Well, let me give you a couple recommendations for where to start. Start biblically. Start biblically. We can enumerate God's wonderful works biblically. Recount the history of Joseph. Recount the history of the exodus from Egypt. Talk about how God rescued David from Goliath. Recount Assyria's siege on Jerusalem under King Hezekiah and how God sent the angel of the Lord out to destroy the Assyrian armies. Recount how God worked to send Nehemiah fully funded to rebuild the wall in 52 days. Recount the protection that God gave to the baby Jesus as his life was hunted. Recount the crucifixion. Recount the resurrection. Do you know these histories? Have you spoken about these histories as a parent, as a teacher, as a friend? Have you even recounted them in your journal? Have you tried to delight in enumerating the innumerable wonders of God's saving history in the scriptures? Secondly, theologically, we enumerate God's wonderful works theologically The study of theology is rich and it is sweet. If you've never dipped into the theology of salvation before, which in a typical systematic theology textbook is one of ten chapters, if you've never dipped into the theology of salvation before, a good starting point would be Jerry Bridges' little book, The Gospel for Real Life. You can get it for free on Hoopla. I think it's even available as an audiobook. The Gospel for Real Life by Jerry Bridges. And you should try to grow to a point where you could give a simple definition and description of each of these following salvation words. Ready? Election. Predestination. Adoption, redemption, propitiation, atonement, justification, union with Christ, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification, and I could keep going. The study of theology, of of how God has saved us, is full of richness. 
you will not be able to fully explain the wonders of your salvation. But try. Try. Third, we can enumerate God's wonderful works personally. In this way, I'd especially encourage you to make the best use of some holidays. As Americans, we aren't very good at establishing holy habits on holidays. But you could use New Year's in this way. You could use your birthdays and or your anniversaries to look back and try to enumerate all the ways in which God has been so undeservedly kind to you. Listing out the ways he protected your life. Listing out the answers to prayer that he's given you. Writing out again your testimony of salvation. On Thanksgiving Day, I try to journal a Thanksgiving list that is as long as the years that I've been alive. So this last Thanksgiving, I wrote out 44 things for which I'm thankful. And if the Lord gives me life this year, I'll try to write out a new list of 45 things. 44 last year and 45 this year total up 89. Do you think that's even scratching the surface of God's goodness to me? Not close. But it's thrilling to try. To try to enumerate what's innumerable. All of God's blessings to those who trust in him. So my second point is, if God has saved you, then try to enumerate what's innumerable. His goodness to you. Third, and finally, if God has saved you, then continually offer yourself to him in worship. If God has saved you, then continually offer yourself to him in worship. It's in this third section that David seems to remember when he's talking about sacrifice and offerings that you've not required. He says it twice. It seems that David is actually remembering what he heard about God's words to Saul through Samuel the prophet when God sent the prophet to King Saul to basically say, your reign is over. God told Saul on that day, quote, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Is God interested in your sacrifices, in your rituals? Or is God interested in you? Here David looks at this victory that God's given him when he pulled his feet out of the mud and set him on a rock. And in his celebration and thanksgiving over God's salvation, David in essence says, Lord, I know that after this victory, you're not really interested in my ritual offerings like Saul had tried to offer, as if that would placate you, give you a little bit of the, the, the spoils of the war. You're not really interested in the king's ritual offerings. You're interested in a king whose life is wholly submitted to you. You're interested in a king whose, whose will delights in you and in your law, Lord. That's what David says. And before we come back to the application... Let me say that this here in Psalm 40 is where David's focus expands profoundly forward into the future, a millennium into the future, from himself, one of Israel's kings, to a descendant of his, the future Davidic king, who's going to be the perfect king. 
See, David knew that he himself was not the great eternal king who was promised to come. David knew that he himself was not the king with the ear that always listened to God and submitted to his law. David knew that he himself was not the king who always delighted to do God's will. We know that from this very psalm. There's only one king who ever came, behold I come, with a heart and a will wholly submitted to God, fully delighting in God's law. And what is most amazing, when you read verses 6 through 8, God's not interested in sacrifices and offerings. He's interested in a king who fully obeys me. The king who fully obeyed offered himself as the only sacrifice that can really pay for our sins. That's the point of Hebrews 10. The Old Testament sacrifices didn't have any power to truly cleanse. A king whose heart was perfect needed to come. And he offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice. Wow! Jesus proved that he was the perfectly obedient king to whom all the pointers, all the sacrifices were foreshadowing. And he proved that he has the power to forgive sin and to change hearts so that those who follow him will want to obey God, not perfectly, but truly and one day perfectly. You just say, if you've never called on Jesus to save you, I urge you to call on the crucified, risen, returning king who lived perfectly and then died in the place of you if you would trust him. You can be forgiven. You can be given eternal life, cleared of the sentence of condemnation that you're now under, and you can be justified by your judge, declared innocent because Jesus died in your place. If you have never called out on Jesus for salvation, I urge you to do so now. As the psalm says, he will pull your feet out of the muddy pit of your own sin and guilt and shame, and he will place your feet on the rock. He will cleanse you. He'll justify you. He will give you the right to be called a child of God, and you'll be forever his. Believers, if you have called on Jesus to save you, I now come back to this main applicational point. If you have called on Jesus to save you, and your heart has been united to Israel's perfect king, the king whose heart was perfectly obedient and who offered himself as your once-for-all sacrifice, if you're committed to him, then keep Offering yourself to God day by day. Paul says in Romans 12.1, in view of all of God's mercies to you, it's the only rational response. You offering yourself to God saying, I am yours, God. Heart and body, I belong to you. Take me, have me. How would you use me today? The right response to God's goodness to you is not to offer some occasional rituals like I'm going to attend a service and I'm going to give a little bit. And God doesn't want your rituals. He wants you. He wants you. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He doesn't want your stuff. 
He wants your devotion. He wants your submission. He wants your mind. He wants your will. Day by day, in view of all of God's goodness to you, keep living all out for God's glory. That's how Psalm 40 encourages us to live. In the rest of the psalm, I'm not going to take time to go through it, but I'll just call attention to it. Those whom God has saved are still in the middle of trials. And those, just to review what I put up earlier, those who have been saved still take to God their overwhelming sense of their own sinful failures. We still come to God day by day praying for deliverance from all of our enemies. In fact, Jesus himself said that we should pray every day for deliverance from our greatest enemy. Deliver us from the evil one, Jesus taught us to pray daily. And David urges us in the last place, even while we're desperately crying for help to keep continually praising the Lord, he says there in verse 16, keep saying continually, God, you are great, even while you're crying to him for deliverance. It's good. But here's where I want to end. I just want to end by thinking about those two categories. David in Psalm 40 clearly understands that those who take refuge in the Lord experience decisive salvation. We can say, I have been saved. And for those who have been saved, in a sense, we are still longing for the completeness, the fullness of our salvation. This is exactly how Paul writes in his letters. Paul says that those who trust Jesus are saved. We have been justified by his blood. We have been set free from the law of sin and death, and so on. We are saved. We have been saved. When we look back, we can say, God, you have delivered me from my sin and all of its consequences. I know I'm saved. It's not a hope so, it's a no so. Based on the promises of God's word, I am saved. And yet, even Paul often writes of salvation as a future experience. We will be saved. We will be set free from all of our groaning in this world of death. Those who have been saved will be saved. Psalm 40 is accurate. Lord, I waited on you and you saved me and I'm going to praise you. And Lord, I am still waiting on you to rescue me from all of my foes. I keep crying to you. It's critical. It's critical that believers understand this dynamic. We are saved and we will be saved. And here as I conclude, Peggy, I'm going to put you on the spot. Your testimony was powerful. I loved witnessing your baptism this morning. But as I've prepared this message, I've prepared it with you in mind, praying for you, and I'm going to make personal application to you here at the end. God has saved you. I'm thrilled that you've testified to use the language of verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 40. You did so in the great congregation. <laughs> it was a scary thing. You have reason for joy because you are saved. Because you belong to Jesus, you will never be condemned. 
before the throne of Almighty God. Jesus is your advocate. Your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life. And from this point on, you can always sing songs of salvation. No matter how hard your days are, your weeks are, your months are, your years are, God has put a song of salvation, of praise in your mouth. And it's always appropriate to sing. I would actually go so far as to say it's not only appropriate for you to sing of God's salvation, it's necessary. It's a matter of obedience. The Lord has put a song in your mouth, and you're under obligation to sing praise to him. And yet, for your own sanity and stability, you must realize that you are still awaiting the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises of salvation. So don't be overly discouraged when your life is hard. In fact, when your life's hard, take courage because your salvation isn't done. You've been given eternal life, but right now you're still susceptible to pain and death. You've been promised that your tears are all going to be wiped away. But until then, you're still going to experience pain and mourning and crying. Your sins have been all forgiven. Your slate's been wiped clear. You're free. But you've not yet joined, as Hebrews says, the company of the righteous made perfect. You're going to still war against your old nature day after day until you're glorified. You will be freed from death. You will have your tears wiped away. And you will be made perfect. God is faithful. He who's called you is faithful. He's going to do everything he's promised. And I speak to every believer in here, not just Peggy. I speak to every member indirectly, even as I speak to Peggy directly. You have been saved. So never stop praising God, no matter how hard life gets. And you are still awaiting the fulfillment of every promise of your salvation. So to go back to verse 1, wait and wait and wait. The Lord hears your cries. He will answer everyone. Let's pray.